0: Chapter Seventeen Part Three of War Surgery from Firing Line to Base. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Engle War Surgery from Firing Line to Base by Basil Hughes and H. Stanley Banks. Chapter Seventeen Gunshot Injuries of Joints. Part 3, Injuries of the Ankle Joint. Anatomical Considerations. The ankle joint is a mortise or hinge joint containing one uncomplicated synovial membrane. Anteriorly and posteriorly, the synovial cavity presents an uncomplicated pouch, which occupies a transverse position with regard to the foot. Externally, the inferior tibiofibular joint is provided with the synovial membrane, and this bursal sac is apt to become infected in gunshot injuries involving the external aspect of the ankle joint. In close proximity to the ankle joint are the astragaloscaphoid and the astragalocalcanean joints, while in close relation to the inner aspect of the joint are the posterior tibial artery, vein, and nerve. The ankle joint is surrounded by an arterial anastomosis. Frequency. Out of 2,000 consecutive cases seen at a base hospital, there were 40 cases of injury to the ankle joint. This gives a percentage of 2. Nature of Injury Wounds involving the ankle joint almost invariably involve fracture of bone. Thus, the internal malleolus or the external malleolus may be shot away, detached, or comminuted. Again, wounds involving the ankle joint may similarly involve the tarsal and metatarsal joints, and may be most extensive in nature. Frequently, tendons of the muscles in close relation to the inner and outer aspects of the joint are contused, torn, or completely divided. Infection. The ankle joint is probably less prone to infection than any other joint in the body, though when infected, the same organisms are met with b coli has been a very constant organism in association with wounds of the foot and ankle joint treatment a on the battlefield the leg should be placed on a splint constructed in such a way as to keep the foot at a right angle a modification of the old box splint made from two pieces of ration box and a sandbag will answer all requirements the wound should be dressed with a first field or shell dressing and the foot fixed at a right angle by means of a putty. The patient may be given a quarter of a grain of morphia hypodermically and then carried down to the advanced dressing station. b. At the casualty clearing station. Unless the wound is severe, the patient, after the wound has been inspected and dressed, may be sent direct to the base. If, however, the wound be extensive, it should be excised, a Carol Dakin dressing applied, put up in a Robert Jones crab splint, and sent to the base c at the base hospital. Treatment will depend upon the position and nature of the wound and the degree of infection of the joint. If the internal malleolus be damaged and the joint definitely infected, it is best to remove the malleolus subperiosteally. If, on the other hand, the external malleolus is fractured together with the lower end of the fibula, a not uncommon occurrence, then, subperiosteal resection of the lowered, fractured end of the fibula is the operation of choice. For then, the inferior tibiofibular articulation is exposed. When the infected joint cavity is, by these means, exposed, Carroll's tubes are put into the joint, one anteriorly and one posteriorly. An hourly installation of the hypochlorite solution is carried out. It frequently happens that wounds of the ankle joint which have been excised at the casualty clearing station, and in which the Carroll Dakin treatment has been started at once, do not give rise to infection of the synovial membrane. By continuing the Carroll Dakin treatment at the base hospital, the wound into the joint, even though it involves bone, becomes shut off from the exterior by adhesions which rapidly become covered with young granulation tissue. As soon as the external wound is surgically sterile, two organisms to five fields. Secondary suture is performed, and the greater number of these sutures have healed per primum. Should the joint be wounded from behind and be infected, then division of the achillis gives an excellent approach to the joint cavity, and sterilization can be effected through the posterior wound. Five such cases did excellently, for the joint and wound were sterile at the end of the tenth day. Secondary suture was performed, the wounds healed per primum, and the patients recovered perfect movement. Joints sterilized by subperiosteal resection of the internal or external malleoli have also done remarkably well, and the end results of 15 cases gave perfectly movable joints in nine, stiff joints with partial movement, which was improving in three, while the other three cases are still under treatment. If, despite all efforts, the joint condition is unsatisfactory, and slow of sterilization, and this obtains when the infection is streptococcic in origin, then astragalectomy gives the best results. Should the x-rays show fracture of the astragalus, then infection of the bone is almost certain to be present, and astragalectomy is the best practice. Astragalectomy then is called for in cases of virulent infection of the joint, where the joint is slow to sterilize and the cartilages are becoming involved and also in cases of infected fracture of the astragalus. When the astragalus has been removed, the wound is left widely open and treated by Carroll's method until sterile, when it is sutured. During sterilization and after suture, these wounds are best nursed in a Jones crab splint, as the foot can always be kept at a right angle and inverted. Should the ankle joint be hopelessly disorganized and form but part of an extensive wound of the foot which is highly infected, then amputation in the lower third of the leg is the only treatment. During the period of sterilizing the wound, it is most important to see that the foot is kept at right angles or in slight dorsiflexion and inverted. As soon as the wounded man begins to walk or bear weight on the foot, the sole of the boot and also the heel must be raised on the inner side and he must be made to walk with his toes turned inwards this is a most important precaution as neglect of this will lead to deformity and disability of forty cases of gunshot injuries of the ankle joint all of which were caused by high explosive three necessitated amputation eight per cent twenty eight recovered with good movable joints and the remaining nine which show stiffness are still under treatment there was not a case of ankylosis the Tarsal and Metatarsal Joints Wounds of the tarsal joints are amongst the most difficult of any to sterilize. The synovial membrane of the tarsal joints is a complicated sac and when, once infection has established itself, it is very difficult to eradicate. These wounds are most frequently associated with fracture of the tarsal and metatarsal bones and are but part of one extensive wound. It is very rare to see one of these wounds in which infection is not firmly established by the time the base hospital is reached. Like wounds of the ankle joint, they rarely threaten life by general infection, but they lay the patient up for a considerable period and require much attention in order to get rid of the local infection. Treatment. A. On the battlefield. After application of the first field or shell dressing, the foot should be put up and immobilized in the same way as recommended for injury of the ankle joint. Morphia, a quarter grain, may be given to relieve pain. B. At the casualty clearing station. It is at this unit that early surgical treatment should be given. After thoroughly cleaning the skin, cutting and scrubbing the toenails, and cleaning in between the toes, turpentine cleans the feet probably better than anything else, and shaving the leg, the wound should be excised, and any fractured tarsal or metatarsal bones should be at once resected. After procuring hemostasis, a Carol Dakin dressing should be applied and the patient evacuated to the base. Cases in which this early treatment has been carried out have done well, sterilized quickly, and allowed of the wound being closed. The end results have been good, and the average time before weight can be borne on the damaged foot has been 7 to 8 weeks. Cases in which resection of damaged bone has not been carried out, have hung on indefinitely. Sinuses have formed, and from time to time sequestra have come away. It is weeks before these patients can put their damaged feet to the ground, and the end results have been stiff, painful, and useless feet. C. At the base hospital. Sterilization of the wound is carried on at the base hospital, and secondary suture is performed where practicable. The foot is nursed on a Jones crab splint, and later, when the patient gets up to crutches, a sears apparatus is substituted. The boot should be crooked in exactly the same way as recommended for injuries of the ankle joint before the patient starts to bear weight on the foot, and throughout the treatment, it is of the utmost importance to keep the foot at right angles and inverted. If the metatarsus and tarsus are hopelessly mutilated with tendons, nerves, and arteries divided so that the foot is one stinking mass, then amputation through the lower third of the leg is the only remedy. The Shoulder Joint Anatomical Considerations The synovial cavity of the shoulder joint is a large bursal sac with one annex, the subscapularis bursa. The cavity is traversed by the tendon of the biceps brachialis muscle and the tendon of the subscapularis muscle is plainly seen from within the joint cavity. In close relation to the shoulder joint are the acromioclavicular articulation, the subacromial bursa, and the main vessels and nerves of the upper extremity. The joint is extremely lax, and as soon as air is admitted to its interior, the head of the humerus tends to fall away from the glenoid cavity. This is an advantage from the point of view of sterilizing the joint when infected, as it will be seen from the accompanying figures, that the synovial cavity under these conditions forms a sump. Frequency of Occurrence Out of 2,000 consecutive cases of wounds, there were 30 wounds of the shoulder joint. This gives a percentage of 1.5. Nature of Wound Wounds of the shoulder joint may be penetrating or perforating, complicated or uncomplicated. Penetrating wounds are the result of high explosive or shrapnel, rarely of rifle bullets, soft parts or bone may be involved. In the case of bone, the injury may range from a clean perforation of the head of the humerus to comminution of varying degree. The glenoid cavity has been very rarely involved. Perforating wounds of the shoulder joint are interesting. Many cases are now on record and are far from uncommon in which the shoulder joint has been perforated posteriorly by a small missile such as a rifle bullet or a small piece of grenade. The head of the humerus, which seems to show what might be termed as immunity to comminution, is usually cleanly perforated, and but little disability results, the patient showing good movements at the end of three weeks. It is difficult to explain why it is that the head of the humerus is so seldom comminuted as the result of gunshot wounds, but it is a very noticeable fact for we have seen it repeatedly perforated by such missiles as revolver bullets, pieces of grenade, and even pieces of shell and shrapnel balls, without any comminution taking place. Perforating wounds of the shoulder joint from side to side are more complicated, for the missile, after perforating the joint, may not emerge from the body, but come to rest in the thoracic cavity, the root of the neck, or even the face or head. Wounds of the shoulder joint may be complicated by damage of the acromioclavicular articulation, fracture of the acromion process, or fracture of the clavicle. More extensive wounds of the shoulder may result in laying the joint widely open and the carrying away of large pieces of tissue. Thus, the acromion process, the outer end of the clavicle, and part of the head of the humerus, together with the soft structures, clothing them, may be carried away completely by a large piece of shell. In a number of instances, the upper extremity has been completely torn away from the trunk through the shoulder joint. This has occurred as a result of the burst of a minenwerfer The changes seen in the joint as the result of infection differ in no respect from those seen in other joints, and the organisms of infection are the same. Treatment A on the battlefield the joint must be immobilized by fastening the arm to the side by means of a putty or triangular bandages and bandaging the forearm to the front of the chest. After a dressing has been applied, the wounded man can walk to the advanced dressing station. b. At the advanced dressing station or field ambulance. The dressing should be inspected and also the condition of the circulation in the hand if everything is satisfactory, the patient is sent on to the casualty clearing station. If, on the other hand, the limb is badly mangled and there is no circulation or feeling below the lesion, amputation should be performed without delay and a Carol Dakin dressing applied. We are absolutely convinced that the sooner amputation is performed in the case of hopelessly mangled limbs, the better. For cases we saw at a casualty clearing station during the Somme Offensive in 1916, which had been so treated at the field ambulances, did far better than similar cases in which the mangled limb had been left on until the casualty clearing station was reached. C. At the casualty clearing station. Small penetrating wounds of the shoulder joint can be safely left until the base hospital is reached. The skin around the wound should be thoroughly cleaned and the axilla shaved. The arm is then bandaged to the side and the patient at once sent to the base. Should the missile have entered the root of the neck or chest, the shoulder wound need not be touched, as the majority of these cases, if the wound of entry be small, run an uncomplicated course so far as the shoulder joint is concerned. Under these conditions, the treatment should rather be directed to the chest lesion or to any damage that may have occurred in the neck, such as hemorrhage, etc. The missile should be carefully localized with the x-ray, and if feasible, it should be removed. If, however, the missile is lying in the joint cavity, it must be removed under the strictest aseptic precautions. Small penetrating wounds of the shoulder joint taking an anteroposterior course should be left alone. The skin around the wounds should be thoroughly cleaned and the arm bandaged to the side. Larger wounds of the shoulder of the lacerated type involving bone should be excised, than a Carol Dakin dressing applied. If the head of the humerus be comminuted, the question of excision arises. We are of opinion that excision of the head of the humerus, however comminuted, is wrong practice. We have witnessed the end results of a number of these cases at a base hospital where excision of the head of the humerus for comminution have been performed at a casualty clearing station, and in every case, without exception, the results both immediate and remote were most unsatisfactory. Some cases contracted osteomyelitis of the humerus others separated indefinitely large sequester coming away leaving the patient with a flailed joint whilst others through extensive formation of fibrous tissue developed neuritis and trophic conditions in the limb we never saw these complications occur when the head of the humerus though comminuted had been left alone it is quite sufficient treatment to excise the wound thoroughly leave the joint open and into the depths of its cavity insert one carol's tube. A carol-dakin dressing is then applied to the excised wound, and the patient is sent to the base with his arm bandaged securely to his side. If the acromion process is badly fractured, it is best to remove it, as this renders the sterilization of the joint all the easier. Should the damage about the shoulder joint be irretrievable, and the circulation and sensation in the limb absent, then disarticulation should be performed and a Carroll-Dakin dressing applied to the open stump. D at the base hospital the day after arrival at the base hospital the dressing is changed and the limb is put up on a Thomas's straight arm splint with extension. The Carroll-Dakin treatment is continued and at the end of the fourth or fifth day the joint cavity becomes shut off from the wound by adhesions over which grows young granulation tissue. The wound becomes sterile at the end of the 10th to 14th day when secondary suture is performed. We have not found it necessary in a single case to excise the head of the humerus, however comminuted. After suture of the wound, the arm is still kept abducted for another fortnight or three weeks. The stitches are removed at the end of the 10th day. Between the 4th and 5th week following injury, the splint is removed under an anesthetic and the arm is brought down to the side. This necessitates the breaking of one or two friable adhesions. All movements of the shoulder joint are performed once the patient is under the anesthetic and the arm is put in abduction for another week. At the end of this time, massage and passive movements are begun and the results have been surprisingly satisfactory. The shoulder joint appears to be the easiest joint in the body to sterilize probably on account of the simple nature of its synovial cavity, and this despite comminution of the head of the humerus. Wounds in this region, which certainly 18 months ago would have undergone disarticulation at the shoulder joint, have, when treated by the Carol Dakin system, given most astounding results, not only in rapidity of sterilization and secondary suture, but also as far as movement is concerned. The complications to be feared in extensive wounds of the shoulder joint are ankylosis and osteomyelitis. We have only seen osteomyelitis follow excision of the head of the humerus while the wound was septic, while ankylosis has not occurred in any of our cases. Should osteomyelitis supervene and threaten life, then amputation is the only treatment. The elbow joint. Anatomical considerations. The synovial cavity of the elbow joint is complex in variety, comprising one large bursal sac for the humeral ulnar and radiohumeral articulations, and an annex for the superior radio-ulnar articulation. The humeral ulnar and radiohumeral cavity is divided into spacious anterior and posterior compartments by the articular ends of the bones. The superior radio-ulnar articulation is surrounded by the orbicular ligament, which is in close apposition to the lateral articular surface of the bone in close relation to the elbow joint are the brachial artery the ulnar and median nerves and the termination of the musculospiral trunk and a rich arterial anastomosis surrounds it movements of flexion extension pronation and supination are permitted at this joint frequency of occurrence from two thousand consecutive cases of wounds there were 42 cases of injury to the elbow joint giving a percentage of 2.1 nature of injury wounds of the elbow joint are either lacerated penetrating or perforating and practically always involve fracture of bone any of the bones entering into the formulation of the joint may be involved thus one of the condyles of the humerus may be detached the olecranon process may be fractured the head of the radius may be comminuted, or the whole joint may be carried away. Dislocation of the elbow joint has not been uncommon. It may either be simple or compound, is usually caused by the falling in of a dugout or the parapet, and is usually associated with fracture of the coronoid process of the ulna. The ulnar, or median, or the terminal divisions of the musculospiral nerve, may be contused, torn, or completely divided. Giving rise to paralysis corresponding to the distribution of the injured nerve. In a few cases, the whole joint cavity with the soft structures surrounding it is so lacerated and disorganized that the whole of the forearm is one useless dead mass requiring amputation. Infection of the elbow joint differs in no way from that of other joints, for precisely the same organisms have been isolated. Complications. Immediate complications are 1. A spreading or localized periostitis about the lower end of the humerus and the upper end of the ulna, 2. Osteomyelitis and septicemia, 3. paralysis; 4. Hemorrhage. Remote complications are 1. Stiffness and limited movement, 2. Ankylosis, 3. Deformity, 4. Wasting of muscles and trophic phenomena in the forearm and hand. Spreading or localized periostitis has occurred in five cases. The humerus is the bone usually involved, and the condition appears to be of a persistent kind. Osteomyelitis and septicemia are rare complications of wounds of the elbow joint, and we have not seen a case. This is probably explained by the comparatively simple nature of the synovial cavity of the joint. And the ease with which it can be sterilized. Paralyses have not been infrequent and have been chiefly confined to the ulnar nerve and the divisions of the musculospiral. Hemorrhage has been a rare event since the adoption of the Carol Dakin process. Stiffness and limited movements are very apt to follow injuries of the elbow joint. Limitation of flexion and extension and of the movements of the superior radio-ulnar articulation especially inability to supinate the forearm fully, are the common sequelae. This may be due to either intraarticular or extra-articular causes, or both. If a wound has been open and granulating for some length of time, much fibrous tissue is formed around the joint, which will seriously limit movement. Again, if a fracture of the lower end of the humerus or the coronoid process of the ulna has occurred, then flexion may be impossible above a certain point. Angulosis and deformity may occur owing to the joint having been fixed in a faulty position. This is, unfortunately, not a rare event. Wasting of muscles and trophic phenomena will follow when the large nerves of the forearm have been torn or completely divided. Treatment A. On the battlefield The arm, after a dressing has been applied, should be put up on an internal angular splint if this is available. Two pieces of ration box will usually serve the purpose well, and the patient should be sent directly to the casualty clearing station. These patients can usually walk, hence there should be no delay in getting them out of the line. b. At the field ambulance. Nothing further need be done at this unit unless the limb below the injury is dead and useless. If this be the case, immediate amputation should be performed before infection has time to spread. This procedure will also limit the shock occasioned by transport. C. At the Casualty Clearing Station An x-ray should be taken to ascertain the nature of the damage done and to show the presence and position of foreign bodies. This done, the patient should be anesthetized, the whole limb thoroughly cleaned and the axilla shaved. Further treatment will depend upon the position of the wound. If the wound be on the posterior aspect of the joint and involve fracture of the olecranon process, a not uncommon event, the wound should be carefully excised and sutured. The joint is now opened by an incision on its outer aspect. If the surgeon is satisfied that it is infected, the anterior and posterior sacs of the synovial cavity are opened and one carol tube laid into each. The orbicular ligament is next divided, and a third carol tube is inserted down to the superior radio-ulnar articulation. A dressing is now applied, and the limb is put up on a Thomas's straight arm splint with extension. Should the wound be over the inner aspect of the joint, it should be excised, and if feasible, it should be sutured. The joint is opened from its outer aspect, and the rest of the treatment is as described above. If the wound is on the outer aspect of the joint, it should, after excision, be dealt with in the manner already recommended, the newly excised wound being left widely open. By this treatment, every part of the synovial cavity is open and readily permits of sterilization. It is impossible to sterilize an elbow joint through a posterior incision alone, as only the posterior sac of the synovial cavity is accessible. The whole joint must be sterilized otherwise failure is bound to follow. The only possible approach to the whole of the synovial cavity is by means of an incision on its outer aspect. Extension keeps the articular surfaces of the bones apart, and by these means sterilization has proved both efficient and rapid. D. At the base hospital. The dressing is changed on the day following arrival, and the extension tightened up if necessary. Sterilization is carried on, and at the end of a week, the joint cavity is shut off. At the end of 10 or 12 days, the wound is usually sterile, and secondary suture is performed. The stitches are removed at the end of the 10th day, and the forearm is put up in flexion to a right angle and in full supination. Should wrist drop be present, the hand is put on a dorsiflexion splint. At the end of another week or ten days after the wound is soundly healed, the patient is given an anesthetic, preferably gas, and the elbow joint is moved once to its full extent in every direction. Thus, extension, flexion, pronation, and supination are all performed once, and the joint is finally left and secured in full flexion, with the forearm fully supinated, which position is maintained for a fortnight. If wrist drop is present, the dorsiflexion splint is still kept on. At the end of a fortnight, massage is commenced and the patient is encouraged to use his arm. And if wrist drop does not complicate the injury, he is allowed to carry small weights. At this stage, the patient is sent to an orthopedic depot where further massage and exercises are carried out. We have never practiced excision of the joint soon after injury, for we have never seen any reason to resort to this treatment. We have been concerned in the after-treatment of several cases, in which excision of the joint had been performed soon after the injury at the casualty clearing station, and all cases but one were disappointing. We have, since adopting the practice recommended above, never seen a case of ankylosis result. Should such a complication be inevitable, the joint must be fixed in a position just over a right angle. With the forearm slightly more supinated than pronated. We are confident that the whole secret of success lies in an early sterilization and closure of the wound with the minimum amount of scar tissue formation. The treatment of paralysis, deformity, ankylosis, etc. belongs to the domain of the orthopedic surgeon, but we would repeat that if early sterilization of these wounds were carried out in every case, there would be considerably less for the orthopedic surgeon to do. While in hospital, a paralyzed limb must be massaged, and a dropped wrist must be kept without intermission in the dorsiflexed position by means of a splint, the patient wearing a sling. If nerves around the elbow joint are completely divided, they should be sutured at the first operation. End Results Out of 42 cases of wounds of the elbow joint seen from start to finish, 34 were covered with good, movable joints. At the end of eight weeks, flexion was good and extension, though not complete, was improving. These men were all able to perform useful work. Of the remaining eight cases, three had undergone excision of the elbow joint at the casualty clearing station, and these cases did badly. Of the remaining five, one case required amputation for secondary hemorrhage while the remaining four cases are still in hospital undergoing the routine treatment, two of them presenting considerable stiffness and limitation of movement. To sum up, the essentials in treatment are, one, excise the original wound as early as possible, two, open the joint cavity by an incision on its external aspect if infection is present, divide the orbicular ligament and insert three Carroll's tubes, three, Put up the limb in extension. 4. Suture when sterile. 5. Remove the stitches on the 10th day after suture. 6. A week later, put the arm in full flexion after performing every movement once. 7. At the end of another fortnight start massage, passive movements, and exercises. 8. Should wrist drop be present, Keep the hand uninterruptedly in dorsiflexion by means of a splint. 9. Massage and electrical treatment for paralyzed muscles. 10. Suture nerves if divided at the first operation. 11. Don't excise the elbow joint while the wound is septic. Carpal and metacarpal joints. The carpal and metacarpal joints possess a complex synovial cavity. The wrist joint, or the joint between the lower end of the radius and the first row of carpal bones, is a simple diarthrodial joint, and in immediate relation, though not always communicating, is the inferior radio ulnar articulation, this articulation being separated from the wrist joint proper by a triangular fibrocartilage. The carpal joints are formed between the eight carpal bones and possess a complex synovial cavity. In immediate relation to these joints are the radio and ulnar arteries, the ulnar and median nerves, and numerous muscle tendons. Wounds involving the wrist may be penetrating or perforating and practically always involve bone. Thus, the lower end of the radius or ulna may be fractured, the carpus itself may be fractured, and even some of the metacarpal bones. Perforating wounds of the carpal joints, the result of rifle bullets, have not been infrequent and often heal by themselves. Fracture of the scaphoid bone has also been fairly common in connection with wounds in this neighborhood. Larger lacerated wounds about the wrist may involve nerves, arteries, and tendons together with bone, and injury to the deep palmar arch often gives rise to most troublesome hemorrhage. Larger wounds of the carpus, though highly infected, are much less difficult to sterilize than corresponding wounds of the tarsus. Twenty cases of wrist joint injury occurred amongst a series of 2,000 wounds, giving a percentage of one. Treatment A. On the battlefield The field or shell dressing should be applied and the forearm put up on a straight splint made from a piece of ration box, with a pad under the hand to dorsiflex the wrist. The arm is put in a sling, and the wounded man can walk to the advanced dressing station. b. At the field ambulance. Nothing further need be done here unless the hand and wrist are irretrievably mangled when immediate amputation is called for. The patient should be sent on with as little delay as possible to the casualty clearing station. c. At the casualty clearing station, an x-ray should be taken to ascertain the damage done to bone and to localize any foreign bodies. The hand should be thoroughly cleaned while the patient is under an anesthetic and the fingernails cut short and scrubbed. Turpentine will be found useful in this connection. The wound should be excised and any detached pieces of bone removed. All bleeding points should be ligatured, a Carol Dakin dressing applied, and the wrist put up on a dorsiflexion splint. Any nerves that are divided should be sutured, but divided tendons should be left until the wound is sterile. Any foreign body should be removed. D. At the base hospital. Sterilization of the wound is carried on until a satisfactory bacteriological report is obtained when secondary suture, if possible, is carried out. The wrist is kept in dorsiflexion throughout. If secondary suture is not possible, the wound edges are approximated by strapping to diminish the wound surface, and skin grafting is carried out later. After the wound is soundly healed, the patient is sent to an orthopedic depot, where massage and finger exercises are provided. Tendon or nerve transplantation can, if necessary, be carried out at a later date. Trophic changes in the skin as a result of divided or damaged nerves must be watched for, and the hand must be kept warm by the use of a woolen glove end of chapter 17 part 3 recording by jill ingle